Now, please welcome Andrew Hudson as he continues the series, My Favorite Song. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's, it's great to be with you. It's good to be with you. Um, like Bill said, we are uh, continuing in a series that we started a few weeks back ago called My Favorite Psalm. Well, we've been kind of exploring a few different popular psalms and just getting kind of a taste of what this, this book is all about in the Bible. And uh, if you were here last week, Olivia Allen spoke on um, Psalm tw- or 42, and the week before, Michael shared on Psalm 103, and I believe the very first week, JT spoke on Psalm 139, and all of them were excellent talks, excellent talks. And today, I get the pleasure of sharing on Psalm 51, and I was thinking about this group of great communicators that I just mentioned, and I, I was thinking about... Uh, so all of a sudden, something came back to my ch- from my childhood. I remembered the, the great words of Big Bird. You remember? Big Bird, who said, you know, one of these things is not like the others. You know, which one is different? Do you know? And I was thinking about, as I put myself in that group of four people who shared in this series, I realized I'm, I'm the one that's different. That I'm the one that doesn't belong in that group. And here's what I mean by that. If you know Olivia, Michael, and JT, they're all seasoned worship leaders. They're all seasoned worship. If you, if you haven't been around here for very long, eventually you will see all three of them up here at some point leading us in worship. All three of them have, have written their own worship or psalms, you could say, themselves. That, that they are connected into that. And, and then there's me. <laughs> And I have zero musical talent whatsoever. Uh, the day that I come up here and pick up a guitar or stand behind the keyboard, you're all going to want to run for the doors. It's not going to be pretty. Now, I love, love, love worship. I love to participate in worship. It's just not something that I'm personally gifted in. But I'll, I'll be completely, completely transparent and honest. I really, in the past, have struggled with reading the Psalms. I've really struggled with reading the Psalms. A few years ago, if you asked me to like maybe rank my top go-to books of the Bible that I tend to, to turn to a lot or go back time and time again, Psalms would not have been near the top of the list. And I, best, I bet if you asked JT, Michael, or Olivia, I bet it would be up there as maybe the, the highest one or near the top. And here's, here's where I think that is for me in the past. I think it's, it's because I'm naturally, I'm naturally a, a give me the facts kind of a guy. You know, I, I love to read science and history. I, I, I'm drawn to facts. I'm drawn to a good historical story. You give me a story about Jesus healing somebody or Moses or Paul any day of the week. And it's, it's not that I could never appreciate the Psalms. Like, I, I could always appreciate them as beautiful or poetic, but I ha- honestly would have trouble connecting with them. I would often feel like I was missing something, that if I could just interview that writer, that songwriter, and ask them, what were they going through that inspired them to write these words, to sing these words? That maybe I could understand the story behind the song, that maybe I could, could connect with it better. I remember a few, about a little over a year ago, my wife and I went to a concert of a band that we really always have liked, and it was a great concert. We were having a great time. And then there was this one song, and, and right before this one song that I'd heard many a times, uh, the, the lead singer stopped, and before singing it, he basically told the story that inspired that song. 
He told this story of growing up in California and as a child when it would be forest fire season, which I've never even been to California, so I know nothing. I mean, I've lived in my, Ohio my whole life. Like, it's not something I think about that often. What it was like, he told the story of what it was like to just, his mom and dad say, get in the car, we're leaving, and leaving everything behind and fleeing, not knowing if they'll ever come back, not knowing that when they come back, if any of their stuff or their home will ever be there. And it was that experience that he wrote this song, and then right after that, right after telling that story, he played it, and it was like light bulbs went off in my mind, like, I get it. I get it now. I had no way of connecting to that song before, but now that I know the story behind it, I can understand it. I can understand it. And now, whereas before I would have said it wasn't one of my favorite songs they play, now it has become one of my favorites because I feel connected to it. Here's the truth is, as we engage with the Psalms, we need to remember that they're not just beautiful pieces of poetry, beautiful pieces of music, but that there's actually a story behind every single psalm. There's a story behind it. And the writer is expressing something powerful they've experienced, something they felt, something they wrestled with, something they're celebrating. But unfortunately, for most of the psalms, that story behind them has been lost. We don't know the story. There's a few of them that because of other parts of the Bible, we can make educated guesses about. We can say, well, I think maybe this was probably happening about that time that can clue us in. But there's a few. There's a few that we are lucky enough to know in great detail what the writer was going through that inspired that psalm. And Psalm 51 is one of those psalms. It's one of those lucky few. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into Psalm 51 here. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, would you continue to draw near to us and encourage us today? Would you speak to us through this Psalm 51 and help us to understand the story behind it? But not only that, help us to tune in to what you want to do in our lives through this Psalm today. Let's pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So what is the story behind Psalm 51? Benita read it for us this morning if you were here at the beginning of worship. And at the very beginning of what she read, there's a note. There's a note that tells us that King David was the author of Psalm 51. And not only that, it tells us that it happened after this event that happened that we find in a different part of the Bible in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And, and just to tell you kind of what happened in that part, you can go read it for yourself. But, but basically, in that chunk of scripture, there's this very scandalous story that happens where David, who is king, commits a series of sins, one after the other, and then attempts to try to cover them up. And the story goes like this. One evening, David is is at home, he's in his palace, and he goes out onto the roof as palace bigger and looks down over the whole city. He sees this beautiful, this beautiful woman named Bathsheba who happens to be married, and he's filled with lust for her. So he sends a servant to bring her to his palace, and he ends up committing adultery with her, probably against her will. You know, if we think about women at this stage and him being the king, she probably didn't have much choice in this matter. And, um, that's just speculation, but, but I think that's a good, good ar- there's some good argument for that. But in the end, she ends up becoming pregnant. She ends up becoming pregnant. And as Bathsheba's baby bump starts to grow, and as 
the realization that Bathsheba's husband has been off away from the city fighting in battle for weeks, maybe months, that David is about to have some explaining to do. So instead of coming out with the truth, though, he comes up with this scheme to cover up his sin. And he tries a few different things that fail, but eventually he ends up sending Bathsheba's husband to the front lines of the battle to basically guarantee that he's killed. And that's exactly what happens. He dies in battle, being on the front lines. And and our hero, King David, I say that sarcastically, swoops in to quickly marry Bathsheba to cover up her pregnancy and save the day and save his and hide his sin and keep it hidden. And David believes that he's basically gotten away with this whole plan. But God has seen this play out. God has seen this play out and decides to clue in the prophet Nathan into this all. So so God reveals to Nathan all that has happened. And Nathan goes to David. And I imagine David feeling like he's feeling good, feeling like he's gotten away with this, greets Nathan with open arms. Nathan, great to see you. Isn't life so good? And Nathan thinking, it's not going to be that good in a few minutes here for you. So Nathan says, I have a story to tell you, David. I have a story to tell you. There were two men. There were two men. One who had great wealth and owned lots of cattle and sheep. And then the second man was a poor man and only had one little precious lamb that he loved dearly. And a traveler came into town and stayed with the wealthy man. But instead of using one of his many cows or sheep to feed this traveler, he took and stole that one beloved lamb from the poor man and used that instead. And at this point in the story, David speaks up and is furious, and he shouts, this man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are this man. You are this man. And at that, I feel like David probably was a little confused at first and then realized, I don't think we're talking about sheep anymore. And Nathan tells, him, tells David that he knows it all. He knows everything that David has done, that God has shown him, everything that he's done. And it is in that space and in that place that David writes this psalm. It is after that event that David writes Psalm 51. So let's read it again here. It says this. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean and wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me and then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who, are my, or you, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What David does in this psalm is so profound. He, he lets us peer into his own soul, his own experience as he cries out to God in his sin and his guilt and in his shame. And he, he demonstrates for us the nature of sin and how it affects us, how it confuses us, how it twists us up, how it rips us apart, how it spits us out. And most importantly, Davis really shows us a case study of how we can respond when we've sinned, how we can deal with it, how we can go to God with it, and how we can come out on the other side free, forgiven, and continuing to be used by him. And the the first stage of sin that we see in the first point in your outline is this, that it is our natural instinct to try and conceal our sin. You know, part of the human condition is that we all have this instinct in us to cover up our mistakes, to hide it from the world, from others around us, and from God. This has always been true about sin. I mean, when you think about it, in the very beginning, the very first sin, Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden, and what did they do? They covered up and they hid from God. They tried to, at least. That was their instinct. And even if something isn't a sin, even if something isn't a sin, we learn in our, at a very young age, we learn that there are things in this world, that there are things we can do or say that will get a negative reaction from people that are frowned upon. And we, we, we learn to go to great lengths to try and hide those things. You know, for example, uh, for many years I taught fourth graders, uh, nine and 10 year olds. And um, like clockwork, about an hour after lunch every day, their little tummies would start to kind of process their lunch and little gas bubbles to, would start to form. And I, I kid you not, like clockwork, about an hour after every day, somebody would shout out, nasty, somebody ripped one. And, and, and everybody, everybody would be like, wasn't me. Oh, it wasn't me. It was me. You know, and somebody would always say, shout out, oh, you smelled it, you dealt it. Or, and I would, usually, I would usually try to calm them down. I would be like, come on, guys, it's not a big deal. Everybody passes gas. It's natural. And somebody would always say, that ain't natural, Mr. Hudson. <laughs> but, I, but never, ever once, and however many, I think I taught, I taught fourth graders for 12 years. Never, ever once did somebody say, oh, that was me. <laughs> Never once. Never once did anybody admit it. Why? Why? Because nobody wants to experience embarrassment like that. Nobody wants to experience being ridiculed or the shame of that. And how, I mean, it's funny, right? It's funny. But how much more is that true when it comes to our sin? 
How much more is that true? We will go to such great lengths to try and conceal our sin. We'll hide it. We'll downplay it. We'll give excuses. We show our good side to the world and to those around us. We put on masks to appear like we have it all together. And this is David's first instinct, to cover up his sin. But God, God does not want him to cover up his sin like it never, ever happened. God wants him to stop acting like a toddler who covers up his eyes and believes that God can't see me, God can't see me, God can't see me. And so God sends Nathan to help David pull his hands down and acknowledge his own sin. And that leads to the next point, the second stage of dealing with sin, that eventually God confronts us. Eventually God confronts us. He doesn't always confront us right away. He's very patient. He wants to see if we will come to him first. But because he loves us, he will eventually confront us of our sin. I had a, a very Nathan David-like experience one time that helped me learn this the hard way. I was, um, I, I, at the time I was uh, struggling in this repetitive sin pattern in my life and I had hidden it very well. I had hidden it from most people um, and there were parts of me that didn't really care. I thought I could handle it. I thought I could control it. I thought I could hide it. And at the time, I was attending Vineyard Columbus, and I was in a small group uh, in the young adult community called Joshua House back then. And one day, my small group leaders called me up and said, hey, why don't, we, why don't we get together for dessert? Like, let's meet at Cheesecake Factory. And I thought, awesome. Sounds great. I love cheesecake. And so we met, and we made small talk. And I remember the day very clearly. It was a warm summer day. We were at Easton. We sat kind of out on the patio area. And, um, and after the conversation was kind of going well for a while, you know, one of the leaders said, well, actually, we wanted to talk to you about something kind of serious. And I was enjoying my white chocolate raspberry truffle cheesecake, and it was delicious. And I thought, okay, you know. <laughs> and I was clueless about what was going to happen. And the one of the leaders said to me, I, I had a dream about you. And I said, oh, Okay. And they said, well, in this dream, you were doing this and this and it was here and here. And I kid you not, it was like detail for detail what I had been hiding from everybody. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, this cheesecake does not taste very good anymore. <laughs> I think I feel like throwing this up. And I, it was honestly, it was, it was and they were gracious and kind but it was one of the most embarrassing, humiliating moments of my life to be confronted and caught in my sin like that. And I don't think that this is the most common way God confronts us in our sin. I mean, this is the only instance in my life that this is, anything like this has ever happened, and I hope it's the last. But, but surprise, surprise, I still struggle with sin. That wasn't the only time I've ever struggled with sin. You know, and I found that most of the time when God confronts me of sin, it's through a small nudging whisper into my, into my heart, into my conscience, where he says, Andrew, you shouldn't have done that. Andrew, you shouldn't have said that. that that's not going to bring you life. That isn't my plan for you. 
that isn't building up that relationship with that other person or whatever it is. But however God chooses to confront us, whether it's through trusted people in our lives or a gentle whisper to our conscience, it is always, always, always from a place of love. It is always from a place of love. When my leaders confronted me, it wasn't to pile on the guilt and shame. It wasn't to gloat over me or say, we got you. It was out of love. And I believe David understood this too. In the very first verse, the very first verse that he writes, David cries out like this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your unfailing love. David acknowledges that God's character at his core is love. And what does that look like? Because I love white chocolate raspberry truffle cheesecake. Well, not as much as I used to. But, but is it that kind of a love? Because if it's that kind of a love, that's pretty petty and surfacey. No, it is, it is a much, much deeper kind of love than that. This phrase in Hebrew, according to your unfailing love, is kahastika. But it comes from this common root word called chaz, or Hased, I was chased. You're supposed to like hawk up a loogie or something like that when you say it. It's got kind of like you got a fur ball or something stuck in your mouth. But when I when I began to study this, what jumped out with me was that actually, if you were here last week, Olivia, when she preached on Psalm 42, mentioned this word was also in Psalm 42, and and she had told us that it it was. It meant mercy and grace and loving kindness. And now it's talking about unfailing love. And this puzzled me a little bit because I thought, how can it be all these different things? How can it mean all these different things? And so as I began to research it, I realized that this word hased, that, that there is no direct English word that matches up with it perfectly. That it's hard for us, it's hard for translators to pick one word or one phrase to describe it. But I love what John Oswalt, an Old Testament and Hebrew scholar, as he's talking about this word, has said, how he talks about it as being all of those things. It's all encompassing. It's grace and mercy and love and kindness all wrapped up in one. He says that it is a passionate, undeserved love of a superior to an inferior. And it is from that understanding of God's nature that David, the king, remember, king, he is the person who is superior in position to everybody else around him. It is, it is in that space that he recognizes his complete inferiority compared to God. And that God does not just feel a little bit of love for him or a slight interest in him, but that it is all-encompassing. His love is all-passionate, all-undeserving, full of mercy, full of grace, full of kindness, all wrapped up in one. It is a crazy kind of love. And it's from that place and that perspective that, uh, that David has of God that he can approach God and not only ask God to be merciful, but, but expect him to, to know that that's part of who God is. And that leads to the next point in our, in our notes. The third part is the third stage is the contrition of our sin. Contrition is a noun. The, the adjective contrite uh, is the word that we see here in this passage. These are not words that we use in our common language anymore today. I think they lost their popularity in like the mid-1800s. Um, but when we look at verses 16 and 17, look what David says here. He says this, You do not delight in sacrifice. 
or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. A contrite heart is a remorseful heart. It's a repentant heart. It's a humble heart. When we are confronted in our sin, we have a choice. We have a choice in how we respond. We can blow it off and say, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. Or we can engage with a contrite, humble heart with God into that place. God is looking to see if we will have contrite, broken hearts. He isn't looking for any other sacrifice. Okay, God, okay, God, I promise. If you forgive me of this sin, I promise I'll give some of my money away this week. I will start praying and reading my Bible every day. I'll commit to being at church every Sunday for the next month if you'll do those things. Those things are great, but those aren't the kind of sacrifices he's looking for. He isn't looking for you and I to cut a deal with him. He's just looking for humility. He's just looking for humility. There's another part of the Bible in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus tells this parable of two men. He says, two men went to meet with God at the temple. They went to pray to God. And and these two men were kind of polar opposites. One was a religious leader, a Pharisee, kind of the highest status in the Jewish culture. And the other man was a tax collector, pretty much the most despised person in the Jewish culture. And both men show up at the temple to pray and, and meet with God. And the tax collector out loud says, I'm sorry, not the tax collector, the Pharisee out loud says, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector right here beside me. Thank you. I do all the right religious things and I give my money away. That's what he said. And the tax collector who can't even look up from his sandals can't even raise his head up, starts to beat his chest and cries out, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And then Jesus says to the crowd who's listening to this story, he says, which one of these two men do you think God was smiling at as they went home? It wasn't the religious leader, he says. It was the tax collector. It was the humble tax collector, the one with a sincere, contrite heart. That is what God is looking for in us. And if I'm honest, when I hear this story about David's sin, this elaborate scandal, my first instinct is to kind of be like this religious leader. You know, thank you, God, I'm not like David. You know, I've never looked at a beautiful woman, sent one of my servants to her home, committed adultery, then found out she was pregnant, decided to cover it up by having her soldier husband sent to the front lines and killed, all to make sure that I've hidden my sin. I've never done that. I'm pretty sure that nobody in this room has done that exact series of sins in that sequential order. So it's easy, it's easy for me, it's easy for us to look at this story and to be like the religious leader, to say, thank God I'm not like that guy. Or thank God I'm not like that girl. But woe to me. Woe to me to hold on to that attitude without checking my pride at the door. You know, here at VCDC, we want to be a pride-free space where you can come and walk in 
and be our honest selves before God. Because, you know, there's another part in the Bible where Jesus talks about a similar idea where he says, you know, if you think, if you think at least I'm not a murderer, he says, well, have you ever felt hate for somebody? Because in God's view, you basically just murdered that person. And he says, he says, well, if you've ever thought, well, at least I'm not an adulterer. He says, well, have you ever had lustful thoughts about another person? Because if you have, in God's eyes, you've basically just committed adultery. And to that, I say, oh, yeah, I've, I've done those things. I need to check my pride at the door. God is not looking He's not looking for any other sacrifice than contrite, humble hearts. He's looking for those of us with humility will look in the mirror and say, oh God, God, forgive me. I've made a mess of myself. I've made a mess of my life. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need to experience that hased love. That is what God's looking for. And listen, listen, if we, we all struggle with having humility, you know, with having a contrite heart, but when our perspective and our paradigm of God is one in which he has this crazy kind of love for us, then instead of hiding from him and blaming and giving excuses, we will, we will feel safe. We will feel secure. And even in our ugliest, worst moments, we will be able to come before God, pour out our whole hearts in confession. And that, and that leads to the next stage and the next point, that this love-driven confrontation of God allows us to have contrite, humble hearts and gives us an opportunity to confess our sin before God. The whole Psalm 51 is a confession of David's to God. I remember when I was about, I know, I know, I was, not about, I was 17, I was living at home, and I remember one weekend, uh, I had a curfew every, every night, and I, um, I just decided I didn't care that night. <laughs> and I stayed way, way, way out past my curfew. I think it was about 2.30 in the morning. I hopped in my truck, and I looked at my phone, and I had about 10 missed calls from my mom between like 12 and 12.30. Where are you? What's going on? I'm worried about you. I'm ner- you're making me nervous. And I, that whole drive home, I had made up my mind I was going to scheme my way out of this. I had come up with all these lies I was going to say. I was going to say my phone died. I was going to say my friend was having a really, really hard time and really needed to talk. Um, I had all these things worked out. And my parents, we lived as a kid, we lived in this really old 100-year-old farmhouse that my parents kind of fixed up. And so in an old house, there's squeaky floorboards, you know, in places. So I knew I had it. My, my bedroom was right across from my parents. And I had made the assumption that since the phone calls from my mom stopped around 12.30, that that's probably when she went to bed. So my plan was to hopscotch, you know, basically, across to avoid the squeaky boards and to sneak into my room and just say, oh, I came in right at around 12.30. That was my plan. And I, and I got to the house and I opened, unlocked the front door and I walked into the kitchen and there sat my mom. And my, at first, I was about ready to give all my excuses, give all my lies, and then I looked at my mom. And she sat there in this chair, and she was all disheveled, 
And she had on her like pajamas and a bathrobe and her hair was a mess and her eyes were so bloodshot, it was clear she'd been crying for hours. And she had like this death grip on her phone. She told me later she was just waiting from that call from the police to say I was dead in some ditch that I'd flipped my truck some backcountry road. And I, and I, and I saw that Hased kind of love in her eyes for me. And instead of giving all my excuses, I poured out the whole truth and I just wept. I told her everything and I told her how I had schemed to lie about it all. And if I remember, and I remember correctly, my mom basically just said to me, she hugged me and said, don't ever do that again, I'm going to bed. <laughs> That's my mom. And you know what, I never did it again. And in the years that I lived at home, I never was late for curfew again. Because I, 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 under, I saw what it did to her. I saw, I saw how much she loved me. And I didn't ever want to hurt her like that. It drove me to want to be honest with her and confess my stuff to her. It was a big moment for her and I. And David got this. In this Psalm, verse three, he says this to, to God. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David understood that his sins weren't just against the people involved in the story, but that ultimately they were against God himself. That his, his sinful nature had, has been a part of him since birth. But that it's always been God's desire for David to be faithful to him, to draw near to him, even from the beginning. But he could only acknowledge and confess this he could only acknowledge and write these verses if his understanding of God was one of unfailing Hasid kind of love for him. That God was merciful and gracious and kind, all wrapped up in one. And when my small group leaders confronted me about their dream, I could confess it all to them because I knew that it was out of their unfailing love for me that they came to me. And when my mom, who probably should have given me some sort of consequence, yeah, besides just telling me not to do that again, when she waited up for me, when I saw her eyes, I, I saw that same kind of love. And when we see God in this light, we can openly confess to him as well in that safe, secure space. But here's the most beautiful part of it all. Here's the most beautiful part of it all. One with this is that God, God doesn't just leave us to confess our sin and then still wallow in our guilt and shame. He doesn't want us to beat our chest forever. But he, he offers us a way out. He offers us a way through our sin. There is a cleansing and a creating out of our sin that God wants to do in us. And that's the final stage and point in dealing with our sin. That there's this cleansing and creating out of our sin that God wants to do. This psalm is filled with David expressing these kinds of ideas to God. In verse two, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
Verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. God longs to clean us. He desires to wash us and purify us, but it doesn't stop there. He also longs to create something out of our sin. Verse 10, create in me, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This idea of cleansing and creating that God wants to do in us is profound. It's it's a testament to his unfailing love for us. Not only does he cleanse us of our sin, but he wants to use that sin to work it out for our good. To work it out for our good. I love St. Augustine. Our Augustine said it like this when he quoted the Apostle Paul, who originally said, everything works together for the good of those who love God. St. Augustine would always add at the end, even sins. Even sins God uses for us to create something good out of us. There's a A Flemish mystic back in the Middle Ages, uh, Rosebrook, who wrote this. He said, the Lord in his clemency wanted to turn our sins against themselves and in our favor. He found a way to render them useful, to convert them in our hands into instruments of salvation. And not just instruments of our own salvation, but to the salvation of others. That God wants to use us that the Holy Spirit wants to use us, speak through us, sharing our story, our experience to help lead and point others to having a similar experience and understanding of God. David says this in verse 12 and 13. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant, we a, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me and then, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And think about this, King David. Think about the influence he had as king over all the people that were under him. Think about the influence he has on us, leaving us this psalm, showing us how he went to the Lord, understood how God could forgive him, and moved through that sin, that we can model and follow after his model for us. Through God's cleansing and creating out of David's sin, he committed to sharing his experience with others and to teach others and to share his story through that psalm. But not only that, not only that, as we talk about God creating something out of our sin, did you know that David and Bathsheba, that they went on to have another son? And that boy's name was Solomon. Solomon. And it was from Solomon, that line, you know, great, great, 24 great grandsons later, that Jesus would be born. That it was from this, this scandalous marriage, basically, that God used that, redeemed that, and created the most beautiful thing out of that. And that Jesus would come and completely embody God's said kind of love. That he would leave that superior position on the throne and become an inferior baby boy and then grow up to make the ultimate sacrifice, dying a criminal's death on the cross for us. And because of that sacrifice, we have the opportunity to know and experience God's love for us like this. 
You know, in, in some ways, David's story and experience is our story and experience. We've all missed the mark. You know, when God confronts us, if we are willing to offer him our contrite, humble hearts, then our natural response will be to confess it all to our merciful and loving God, who knows it anyways. <laughs> and to exchange that guilt and shame for his gift of cleansing forgiveness, and then over time watch him create something beautiful out of us. As I was um, praying for this weekend, I had this picture in my mind. And the picture was a, was a deer who had gotten its foot stuck in this trap. And he was dragging this trap along, thinking and hoping that eventually it would fall off or it could kick it off. But over time, it just began to dig deeper and deeper. And the deer began to bleed more and more. And the deer noticed that there was this great hunter pursuing it. And God showed me that I was this deer, and that some of you were this deer in this picture. But eventually I stopped, the deer, or, and you stopped, and the deer surrendered and laid down in the meadow, vulnerable and in plain sight. And the great hunter approached, but instead of shooting the deer and condemning it to die, it comforted the deer, it unhooked the trap from its ankle, it cleansed and bandaged up the wound, and it set it free. We have this opportunity today and every day to stop dragging our sin around, big or small, to stop fleeing from the great hunter, God, who is pursuing you and I, to let go of our pride and to meet him in the meadow as he longs to set you free and bandage you up today. No sin is too great. No sin is too small. So today, as we've talked about Psalm 51 and the stages that we see David go through, we should look at our own lives. We should examine and see, are we stuck in one of these stages of sin? Are we stuck somewhere? Are you, are you in a place today where you're, you realize, I've been concealing and hiding some things from God or trying to? <laughs> Do you sense that God is gently and lovingly nudging you by and confronting you today? Maybe your heart's been so prideful and you need God to transform your heart to be a more contrite, humble heart. Maybe it's time to have that honest conversation between just you and God to be honest and confess it all to Him. Or maybe, maybe you feel just dirty and filthy and unclean on the inside because of sin that you've done. And you need that Holy Spirit to come and cleanse you and create something beautiful out of you. Where are you at today? Why don't we stand up? Why don't we stand up? You know, at the end of every service, we want to create space to respond to what God is doing in our lives, where, where he's tugging at our hearts. We don't just want to talk about God here. We want to actually meet with him. And I believe that God wants to meet with some of you all today. So let's just take a quick poll. poll. Uh, if you struggle with sin, just keep standing. Okay, good. I'm in good company. I'm not alone. Because I am in this same boat. This whole sermon I am preaching to my soul. 
No, in all seriousness, I want to invite some of you forward today to really join me up front. To join me up front as a sign of saying to God that I want to, or maybe I realize that I need to, I need to step into that next stage of dealing with sin. That maybe I'm stuck in one of these stages. I need the Holy Spirit to come and show me how to move through that next stage. Or maybe, maybe as I was talking about God as this God of Hased kind of love, that you've never really experienced that or before. Or maybe you've experienced it before, but it, you haven't felt that for a long time. And you just want to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit to experience that. That I want to... So I want to invite some of you forward here in a second to do that. And sometimes I feel like we think it has to be this big, big sin issue to come forward and, and respond. But big or small, all sin is something we need to learn to go to God and address. No sin is too great or small for God to cleanse and create something beautiful out of. And I wonder, I wonder if we took our sin maybe a little bit more seriously then we might also understand how much greater God's grace is for us. So as we sing this one last song, really a psalm actually, to God, I want to invite you to join me up front. No one's going to pray for you today. I want to encourage you just to spend some time talking with God. Spend some time talking with God in whichever capacity you need to. If you need to confess, confess. If you need to make an exchange with him and just receive that unfailing with love, just do that. But uh, Sarah's going to lead us in a song that we sang during the beginning worship set, but I think it fits perfectly with this topic today. So start to make your way forward and join us as we sing this one last song. Mm-hmm.